This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Casey Parks, author of the memoir, Diary of a Misfit. I have spent, just spent so many years like looking through old newspapers. If I could just know immediately where Roy was actually born and what really happened at the beginning of his life, like I would 100% trade my book deal. We'll be back with Casey Parks after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews. Hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters. Consider it a subscription service. It is. It's like a newspaper or any hard good you get delivered to your house on a monthly basis. I have been putting my heart and soul, sweat and tears, yes, sometimes there's tears, into the podcast for nine solid years delivering nearly 50 episodes a year of what I believe, and I hope you do too, is quality content you can't find anywhere else. There are nearly 400 authors in the archive, which is always growing. It represents at least 10 times that number in hours spent reading, researching, interviewing, editing, and producing this show, and it is all me. There is no staff behind the scenes scheduling my guests, reading the books, or helping me research and do the hours of work necessary to get this show into the world where you can download it and enjoy it for free. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is Casey Parks, journalist and author of the memoir, Diary of a Misfit. Parks is a reporter for the Washington Post and covers gender and family issues. She has worked at the Jackson Free Press and the Oregonian. 
Her articles have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, The Oxford American, and The Nation, among others. Her memoir, Diary of a Misfit, is part memoir and part journalistic saga. Parks follows the mystery of a stranger's past and in the process has to reckon with her own sexuality, fraught Southern identity, and challenging relationship with her mother. Parks grew up in rural Louisiana, where her family and her faith were the most important things in her life. But when she came out as a lesbian, her mother shunned her and her pastor asked God to kill her. She thought her life in the South was over for good, but then her grandmother pulled her aside and confessed to Parks that her grandmother grew up across the street from a woman who lived as a man and was known as Roy. This revelation consumed Parks, who spent more than a decade traveling back to rural Louisiana, knocking on strangers' doors, digging through public records, and doggedly searching to discover the story of Roy's life and who he really was. She writes about her journey of self-discovery alongside the quest to understand Roy while straddling the world of her childhood in Louisiana and her current reality living in Portland, Oregon, surrounded by very different influences than where she grew up. We began the interview with Casey Parks talking about the conversation she had with her grandmother that was meant in some ways to soothe Parks after it was clear neither her mother nor her pastor would accept her. She said, some people eat hot dogs and some people eat fish. She likes women and you need to get the fuck over it. Um, But she never like turned to me and said, how you are is okay. She kind of um, told stories instead and I was kind of left to deduce that that meant she was okay. <laughs> Could you describe Delhi and where sort of the the story unfolded for you and what you were trying to to find there, what it was like? The book largely takes place in Delhi, which is a little tiny town near the Mississippi River that both my grandmother and mother grew up in. I used to visit it as a little kid to go see where my mom had grown up, but I didn't really think that much of it as a kid. Like we would go to a a pharmacy that sold vanilla Cokes and tuna salad. And that was kind of my whole understanding of that place. But I knew that it was tiny and I knew that it was likely fairly conservative because the town that I lived in, which is about 45 minutes away, was very conservative. And I really had no curiosity about it as a kid other than like, This is kind of a broke downtown that's even smaller than the town that I live in. Why would anyone live here? When I was 18 years old, my grandma told me that she had grown up across the street from this person. And she described him as a woman who lived as a man. And I had never met anyone like that at that point in my life. I don't think I had ever even met anyone who was gay. And so I was shocked that not only did someone like that exist, but they existed in this little tiny town that I thought of as just like the place where you get vanilla Cokes. So I initially asked my grandma, I was like, well, well, what happened like to this person? Like, did people care? Like, did they tar and feather this person in the street? And my grandma was like, no, honey, like everybody loved Roy. And that really did not square with my understanding of North Louisiana. So it was on one hand hard to believe, but on the other, like my grandmother said it with such confidence that I had to believe her. And so for a while, I think I thought 
well, Delhi must be this kind of like Xanadu where everyone accepts the local trans person. And I kind of idealized it, I think, in my mind. But at that point, I didn't have a car. I wasn't really a journalist. I wanted to be a journalist, but I was 18 years old and in college. So I didn't immediately go to go there and like try to track him down. I would just like ask my grandma for details about him. She really used that as an avenue to tell me more about the town. So she would tell me that she had grown up picking cotton outside of town and that she had moved there because cotton picking had mechanized. And she would try to describe the street to me. Like she would want to describe what the trees looked like on the street and what the houses looked like on the street. And I would be like, okay, I don't care about that. Like, just tell me about the person that was woman living as a man. Like, that's all I want to know about. And as you get older, like, I think your curiosity expands. And so by the time that I was old enough to actually do something about the story, I had a, a much greater interest in the place itself because I think at that point I was really homesick because I, had, I hadn't lived in Louisiana for eight years. I, I missed things about it, but I also saw that like a place can really shape you. And I, I think I wanted to understand that more. And so all of those things that I once considered superfluous that she told me, like what the houses looked like, how the town got built up, suddenly all of that stuff started to be more interesting to me. And she was thrilled about it because then it just made, you know, I was asking her lots of questions about her life and she loved to talk. So, so we, you know, we spent hours just talking about what the place looked like. And when she told you this, like you were saying, you it didn't really square with how you grew up or your own, you know, you were going through your own identity and figuring that out for yourself and you didn't know any gay people there. And then when you learned about Roy, it sort of like was like a dart to your spirit. It You just could not let this go. And so tell me more about like how it had this hold on you and what that felt like, even in your body, what it felt like and how you decided eventually to create a documentary. But by the time you had decided that Roy was no longer on this earth. Well, I think it was initially just a curiosity because I didn't know anybody. By the time I figured out I was gay, I did have the internet. And so I had like looked online for people and, and even talk to some. None of those were people who lived where I lived. There were people who were in Pennsylvania or Portland. So I didn't know yet if that was something that you could be in Louisiana. And the fact that he had existed a long time ago, my grandma told me she met him in the 1950s. That was very fascinating to me because I guess I thought like, any kind of gender bending was like a new concept. And if something existed a long time ago, that made it more real to me, I guess, or maybe like more justifiable. And I, and I think I wanted it to be justifiable at that time. You know, I was really fascinated about it when I was 18. And I did, anytime I talked to my grandma, I did ask her about it, but I only became obsessed with it much later because Right before she told me this story, I had kissed a girl for the first time. So I was kind of just like in the new throes of my own gayness. And like pretty soon after she told me this story, I just kind of like, you know, went into that world. And I think I've, I met like all five other gay people and 
Mississippi. I was attending college in Mississippi at the time. And so like once I went back to college, I found the other five gay people in the state and we all became close friends. And I think I met even more people on the internet. And it's not that I forgot about Roy, but I wasn't thinking about him all of the time. And though I wanted to be a journalist, I didn't really understand the concept of what all that could mean. Like I thought of it in terms of just like daily newspaper stories. So I didn't think that I could go back and like learn about someone who had existed a long time ago. So I wasn't thinking like, I'm going to do anything about this other than pester my grandma until about seven, six, seven years later. I think, yeah, the first tape I have of my grandma talking about this is from 2008. And at that point, I had become really fascinated with podcasts. Like I was just listening to Radio Lab and This American Life at this point. And I thought like, well, that's what I want to do. And I had no audio skills, but I got in my mind that like, I want to get a job at This American Life, which, you know, hundreds of thousands of other young journalists have had that same idea. I was not special. And, but I was confident, you know, if I just make one story, they're going to see that they need to hire me. And so I was kind of like racking my brain of like, what should the one story be? And I immediately thought of Roy because the story my grandmother told me was that he had been kidnapped. He, he was living in Arkansas and the, the next door neighbors saw that he was being abused. And so they kidnapped him and, and changed his clothes into a boy and changed his name and like ran to Louisiana with him. So like the kidnapping thing seemed like a really great thing for this American life. And at the time I still thought that everyone in that town loved him. This is only a couple of years after most states had banned same-sex marriage. And I wanted to kind of thwart the idea that all Southerners hate all queer people. And I thought, well, I'll do this story for This American Life and like they'll get hooked in by the kidnapping thing. And then I can slyly show that everyone in this town loved this guy. I, it kind of became like a big family thing. Like my mom went with me to Delhi for my first reporting trip and my grandma was helping me and my aunt and like I bought all of this equipment I had no idea how to use and we all just like trucked down to Delhi to start this project and it was only after that trip that I became really obsessed with it and I think if you had told me at that time like you're going to be working on this for the next 14 years. I think I would have probably been like, oh no, thank you. I don't want to do that. So one of the things that I walked away with, because this is also about your life and about your life growing up, was that this was also just a deep story about you and your mother. Your mother is such a dynamic, was such a dynamic woman, at least on the page. She had a lot of demons and could definitely turn her charm on and off depending on what was going on in her life. But it was also like a deeply, deeply moving story about your family. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, if, if a reader like me walks away thinking this was also a mother daughter story, how you feel about that. And also a little bit about the process of writing it and how you chose to, to modulate that with the story of Roy, how you, how you balanced all of that. So I never wanted to write about myself. I initially started making this as a documentary and I had a, a part, a filmmaking partner with me. Their name is Aubrey Bernier Clark. And Aubrey would often ask me to be a part of the movie, 
And they would say like, well, it needs a narrator, like someone to keep all the interviews like hooked together. And they would interview me at the end of every, like we would do an interview and then Aubrey would turn the camera on me and be like, well, tell me what just happened in this interview. And in all the tape, I look like such a brat because I did not want to be interviewed at all. And I would just be like, please don't make me do this. And I have like, <laughs> I just, I look so, I don't know, miserable or non cooperative. I just really didn't want to do it. And they would often try to get me in the shot with the person that we were interviewing. And I really felt at that time, like I am a journalist. I work for newspapers. I do not write about myself. I do not make anything about myself. This has nothing to do with me. This is just an interesting story. It has nothing to do with my life. And even on the first trip, my mom told someone Oh, we're doing this story as a journey of self-acceptance because my daughter's gay. And at that point, I was 27 years old. I had been out of the closet for nine years. And I have this on tape, so I know I did this. I looked at her and just very angrily said, don't tell people I'm gay. That's not why I'm doing this. And I continued to resist that for a decade. And I, I kept applying for grants to make the movie. And I kept getting rejected. I think applied for like 10 grants and got rejected for all of them. And one of the last ones I got rejected for, the woman emailed me and she said, I'm not going to give you the money, but can I call you and tell you why? And she also said, okay, I'm not really looking forward to this conversation, but sure. So she called me and she said, Roy can't be your main character because he doesn't change. Like your main, a main character has to change over the course of a narrative and Roy's dead and he can't change. And I, on the phone, I said, well, what about my grandmother? Could she be the main character? And the woman was like, no, it's you. <laughs> and I was like, absolutely not. I do not want your money. Goodbye. I'll just keep figuring this out. And even after that, I was just like, no, I'm not making myself a part of this. Like, I want to keep working in journalism. Eventually, I quit my job at the Oregonian and I went to Columbia University to get my master's program. And they have this really cool class at Columbia that's a book writing class. And one of my favorite journalists, Andrea Elliott, had told me this is the best class at Columbia. Like, you have to get in. And Initially, I was like, well, I don't have a book idea. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And she said, well, do your documentary. So I was like, okay, well, maybe this will, if my graduation hinges on me doing this, maybe this will actually help me figure out an outline. So you write six chapters in that class or like six narratives that are very short. They're probably like 3,000 words. And I wrote one and the professor was really nice and, and said he liked it. And then I wrote another that was kind of a similar, it's just about Roy and I'm not in it. And the professor liked it. And then he called me to his office and he said, why are you leaving yourself out of it? Like, why don't you put yourself in it? And I remember again being like, no, I'm not writing about myself. And he said something like, come on, like, don't act like you don't have skin in the game. Like, just try one. Like, what do you have to lose? And he also said, well, you need to put your mom in here and I was like my mom has nothing to do with this like I'm not putting my mom in this book and he just basically said well try one and see and like if you you know I'm the only person who's going to read it so if it's bad you can move on and I wrote one 
And it was about the day that I came out to my parents, which was on Easter Sunday in church. I realized as I was writing that, that when I was a kid, I had this favorite church song. It's called Shout to the Lord. And I realized that I hadn't heard that song since the day I came out to my parents. And it had once been so important to me. And I had just given it up. And I I played the song and I just like started sobbing like in the Columbia library. And I realized like, I think for the first time, like all I had lost because I had been pretending I was all brash and didn't care. So from my like crying place, I wrote what he told me to write, which was a first person version of one chapter of the thing of this book. And after I wrote it, I realized it was so much better than all the other things I had written. And I was so mad because I knew like that he was right. And that lady from the grant was right. And Aubrey was right. And I just really didn't want to do it, but I care very much about the best version of, of writing, you know? And so I was just like, okay, I'll try. Now I'm going to try one with my mom in it. And so I wrote what became the first chapter of the book. And I pulled out all my old tapes and I had forgotten that my mom went on that trip with me. I had just like blocked her out of my mind completely. Like in my mind, I'm the only one who did this. And I pulled out the tape and she was there with me at every stop. And like, there's just hours and hours of her out there with me. And I just watched it the way I would as a journalist and not as a daughter and could see and just try to look at myself as a different person in these videos. And I'm like, Who is this person? What is motivating them to do this? Why are they telling people this isn't about them being gay when it obviously is, you know? And from there, I just kept going, I guess, and tried to divorce myself from the reality that eventually it would come out and people would know things about me. Because when I started writing it, I realized there were tons of things in there I had never told my spouse. I had never told my best friend. And now suddenly I'm going to put this book out there and any person with $29 or less, you know, once Amazon discounts it, is going to know this about me. And like, I better start telling people who love me these things. So it's it's freaky. You know, I've, I've just gotten like a couple of messages from people who got advanced copies and it's now really dawning on me for the first time, like, oh, my life is going to be accessible to a lot of people. And what hole can I go crawl into? Can you talk a little bit about your mom and who she is on the page and and your relationship with her? Like, I find her to be an incredibly dynamic individual who suffered some big losses in her own life. You know, for many years, I thought about this as a story about my grandma. And it wasn't until maybe 2018 that I started to think about including my mother And initially, I was really resistant to it because she and I had had an estranged relationship for a while. And the only way I could kind of exist in the world is if I had a lot of walls up in my heart about my mom and didn't think about her a lot or didn't allow myself to feel anything about her. I would would sometimes tell stories about her, but I wouldn't let myself really feel anything about her. And to write a book, unfortunately, you have to feel a lot of stuff. And after my professor challenged me to write about my mom, I pulled out all these tapes and I could see just like how fascinating she was and how difficult it was for her to go back to this hometown 
And I think we did three or four interviews on that first trip. And in each video, she starts talking about herself and she starts talking about this boyfriend that she had in high school who died by suicide. And I, I, I couldn't, you know, she would tell me those stories when I was young, but I was really uninterested in hearing them. But then when I was just like sitting with the tapes and could listen to her and, and not think about her as my mom, but think about her as someone that is a, a character, I guess. I could see just like how fascinating she was. And like, I could see all of the pains that I had never wanted to hear when I was younger. And I could see just how naturally she get, how naturally gifted she was at interviewing people. One of the most humbling parts of doing this book has been all of my family members have helped me and they are all so much better at talking to people than I am. And I'm the one who gets paid to do it, but they, they're all super charismatic and super smart. None of them ever went to college, but they just know so much stuff. And and I could see that, like, one of the first interviews, she wanted to go talk to the police chief of this town. And she was just really charming him and asking really smart questions. And I mean, well, just, like, silent, you know, I'm just silent and dumb the whole time. I barely say anything. And then we went to the cemetery to see where Roy was buried and she and this guy were talking about all these different people who had died over the years, either by drugs or by suicide. And as I watched the video, I could start to see, I guess I could start to see this town take shape and, and understand not just Roy, but my, my family and how this place shaped them. And once I introduced her in that first chapter, I knew like I had to dig deeper into her and really try to make make her real on the page which is just impossible because it's impossible to capture her charisma and while I was at Columbia in that book writing class my mom died and it was very sudden and my that's when my professor said well you need to make your mom a part of this book and I thought you're only saying that because she's dead that she's not a part of this I remember I was actually really angry, not just because she died, but because I thought like in order to write a book, you have to like let it sit for many years and process it. And I felt like I'm finally ready to write this book because it's been a decade and now your death changes this whole book for me. And I was ready and now I'm not because you just died and I can't do another 10 years of this book. Like I have to finish this. It's, it had become like an albatross in my life. Like everywhere I would go, people would ask me if I had finished it. And it was so embarrassing to me to say, no, I, I, I can't get any grants. I can't, no one wants me to make this film. And I watched all this tape of her and I could see my 27 year old self was so uninterested in anything that she had to say. But my 37-year-old self knew that I was never going to get to ask her anything ever again. And suddenly, every little morsel she left behind was fascinating to me. Every I had about 40 unread voicemail messages from her. Most of them were just like, why don't you answer your phone? But all of those suddenly became really interesting to me. I, I wanted to write about her because if I was writing about her, then I got to watch the video where she was still alive. Because I have eight terabytes of video footage for this. So I would just watch it and not have to be in the real world where she was dead. And 
I think, you know, when I ran out of videotape, then I just turned to everything else, like letters or pictures or journals or my own memories. I mean, I searched the internet for any clue of her. I found she had like an online journal I never knew about. I found every Amazon review she did. And all of those pieces started to add up to a more full person than I had ever allowed myself to really know because I, I did understand my mom in extremes. One extreme was she was very funny and she was a great dancer and she was ribald and there's nothing she wouldn't say. And I kind of talked about her like a caricature of like, here's this crazy thing my mom did. And the other side of her was someone who was deeply addicted to opioids and had been my entire life. When I was young, we didn't know it was opioids. We didn't have that word or that context. We just called it taking medicine. But she would not sleep for a whole week, or then she would sleep for two weeks. She would wake up in other towns and call us. Um, She would beat me. She would force me to eat, like, raw food that she had thought she cooked. I kept all my journals from when I was a kid. And, like, initially when I started writing this, I thought, well you're making this up. This isn't as bad as you remember. But my journals from a kid are actually much worse than I remember. Like there was multiple journal entries where I would say, I would write, I'm late for school, but my mom won't make up. She's passed out on the floor and I I think she's dead or, and I had never imagined writing about that. I had never even imagined telling anyone about that. I guess having the context of the book and going back again looking at all the tape allowed me to see the whole journey in a different way long after I knew I wasn't getting the job at This American Life I kept funneling my own money into working on it even though people kept telling me they weren't going to give me a grant even though people told me it wasn't worth doing and I could see that that I must have kept doing it because I wanted to go home and I didn't know how to go home if I weren't going home as a reporter. So one of the things about this book, the other main element that that spurred you on was trying to figure out who Roy was, trying to figure out how he felt. One of the things that he left behind are these reams of journals. And part of your story is trying to get the journals from some people that have it that don't want to give it to you. One of the things that I sensed was when Roy left the journals, he said basically to these people, like, a curse on you if you ever let them go. And you also have another character in the book named Pam who makes a promise to her dying stepfather that she will take care of her mother. And she has to fulfill that even though she herself is gay and wants to live another life and can't admit that to her mother. So she's kind of stuck living this life that isn't true. So I got this sense that these sort of dying wishes were a part of the book and the culture. Well, the actual story starts off with a dying wish because the story that my grandma first told me is that the woman who raised Roy on her deathbed called my great-grandma across the street So the woman who raised Roy was this Native American, like six foot tall Native American named Jewel Ellis. And Jewel Ellis was supposedly like in a bathtub full of alcohol, dying. And 
she pulled my great grandmother down in the tub of alcohol and said she needed to confess something on her deathbed. And she said, Roy is as much a woman as you or I ever was. She made my great grandma promise that she would keep Roy's secret and then watch out for him on the street. And my grandma, when she told me, she was in her 60s, so she wasn't on her deathbed. But she did tell me with this kind of caveat of, it's eaten at me my whole life. Am I going to die without finding out? And so there was very much like the whole thing to me was built upon deathbed confessions of like this deathbed confession happened. And don't you make me wait till my deathbed to find things out. And yeah, Roy had left a deathbed curse to his neighbors that if they threw away any of his stuff that he would haunt them. Yeah. I think that's just extremely Southern, you know, like, well, first of all, a lot of Southerners believe in the afterlife. And so I think there is a sense that they'll just be watching from heaven and, I mean, even me, you know, like I, I definitely have made a few celestial pleas while working on this book to try to get people in heaven to broker some deals for me. I think there is like this idea that like the afterlife and the present life like exist together somehow. And Southerners are also just so dramatic. So I think, you know, like we're not going to die without one last big thing. I, I thought for many years that the book would probably end with my grandmother dying, that that would be like the final chapter because it seemed like such a book predicated on deathbed confessions. And it actually, she, she did pass away, but it, it, the book goes on for quite a few more chapters after that. The, the central core, I guess, also is the mystery of who Roy was because you're trying to piece his life together. And the truth was your grandmother told you that, but many people in the town that you talked to who knew Roy understood that Roy was a woman dressed in man's clothing and accepted Roy for that. I mean, there were there was someone at church that really wanted Roy to wear a dress, but that wasn't going to happen. Roy was very devout. Roy loved music. Roy was also, I think, very lonely. And so... While you're you're attempting for years and years to get these journals to understand him more, you did learn a lot about him. So I just was wondering if you could share a little bit about who you found Roy to be. And I don't know if you had expectations when your grandmother first told you the story, but what it felt like as you got to know him. Yeah, when my grandmother first told me, I thought I would just roll into town and load a spool of microfiche onto the computer and there would be an article that said baby stolen and I would find out who Roy's real parents were and thus somehow I would know everything about him. I don't, I had a very juvenile understanding of journalism back then. It turns out I've never been able to find that article and so all I could do was talk to people who knew him and my grandma told me that everyone loved and accepted him and I there is a, a modicum of truth to that, but I don't think it's true in the way that she conveyed it to me. I think most people actually didn't know Roy. A lot of my interviews, and I probably did 40 over the years with people, maybe more. A lot of them are just people saying, oh, yeah, I knew Roy. Roy mowed lawns and played music. Or Roy had a lot of dogs. Roy rode a three-wheeled bicycle, and then they just didn't know anything else. And, you know, after a while, it became frustrating just on a craft level of, like, I cannot do another interview where people just tell us the same four facts. 
but it also just slowly dawned on me how sad this was. Like everyone knew of Roy because like one woman in town described him as a novelty. Like he was different. So they definitely noticed him. And I think that they would say that they didn't have hatred toward him and that they were tolerant of him, but they didn't love him the way you love someone in real life. They didn't show up for him. They didn't get to know him. When he was older in life, he had a lot of cats and dogs and people started avoiding his house because it smelled too bad. Their tolerance was born out of a lot of negotiations. Like people said that they were okay with Roy living as a man because he had been kidnapped or because a piece of farm equipment had supposedly fallen on his head and stunted his growth or because his parents couldn't afford starch to buy dresses. Most people never allowed that maybe Roy was just transgender. And at the time when I was doing these stories, I remember looking up a fact at the time that said only 8% of people knew a trans person. So I don't think they had the con the global context to think about trans people. And so they didn't have like a hatred because they didn't, Roy didn't represent a big political thing to them. To them, it, he was just Roy. I think if there were a Roy today in this small town, it would probably be a lot different because now there is all this riled up hatred about trans people. So in some ways, he kind of, I guess, benefited from living earlier at a time when it wasn't a thing that people fully understood. But I mean, I have no idea if he would have used the word trans for himself. It wasn't as a popular of a word. There certainly were other trans men. There was Billy Tipton, who was a jazz uh, musician who lived in Spokane, Washington. There was Alan Hart, who had a hysterectomy back in 1917 in Oregon. There were also trans women like Christine Jorgensen. And the, the Monroe newspaper wrote about them, but they wrote about them in a way to out them as liars. Like when Billy Tipton died, they, I think the Monroe newspaper wrote about it as he was a she, jazz singer revealed to be liar. Now, now people would not use that kind of language or I don't, maybe some newspapers would, but the newspaper I work for would not use that language. But there's just also like a whole different political and cultural context about it. And, you know, I don't, I suspect based off of the interviews that I've done and research that I've done, I suspect that Roy was trans, but I, I don't know because I, I never got to ask him that question. And the, the, the framework didn't exist for it him to talk about it at that time I don't think do you think that your project is better because of the mystery what mystery just the mystery of who Roy was I mean first of all you never got to talk to him and second of all you were talking about how so many people knew for facts so you found some people that really knew him but the propelling part of the propulsion of the book is both the search to find him out, out who he is, and that also this question like, can you ever really know someone's intentions? Like you don't know the answers to these. So does that almost, if you had gotten all that microfish, would this have existed and would it have the same energy? It might not have the same energy, but I think I would trade 
whatever better is for knowing because like I have spent just spent so many years like looking through old newspapers if I could just know immediately where Roy was actually born and what really happened at the beginning of his life like I would 100% trade my book deal just to know because I just want to know I don't I don't know and like I have a day job you know happy as a journalist I didn't have to write a book um but I you know Certainly the tension is sustained longer over 130,000 words or whatever by it not being easy to find things out. But, you know, there's been a lot of podcasts that are like that end with you not knowing the answers to things. And then the podcast is supposed to be a commentary on the nature of truth. And I find them very frustrating to listen to. So I didn't want to do a book that comes to the same conclusions So I do think my book comes to some conclusions and, you know, we do find things out over the course of the 10 years in a way that made me feel good about publishing it. I think if I had just come away only knowing Roy rode a bicycle, Roy mowed lawns, Roy played songs, I don't think I would have tried to do a book about that because I think you can only pontificate for so long. As a reader, you want to know, you want some answers, you know? And so I, I do think we get some answers in some unorthodox ways over the course of the book, you know, like one person somehow produces Roy's old Bible and there's tons of notes in the old Bible that Roy wrote that I think answer a lot of questions. And, and we found people that knew stuff or had stuff and it just took a really long time because people did not want to hand it over or I didn't know how to find them or how to find the documents. So I'm, I do hope a little bit that once this publishes, someone who's like a really good genealogist, like solves this in like an hour and calls me to tell me that I'm an idiot. And, and they just give me the answers because I, I'm just curious. Um, can you read something by an author that speaks to or influenced you as a writer? I read lots of books. and always have since I was a kid, but I don't read books with an eye toward influencing me as an author. I just read books for fun. And it, it, it's a, my escape from the world. And I try not to think about them as work, I guess. So I've picked something that's actually not a book, but is a magazine article that I would say is the number one influence of my life that inspired me to be the, the kind of journalist that I guess I am, or I'm an, on my way to becoming. And in a way inspired this book because it was the first piece of journalism I ever saw where I saw that my people that I grew up with could be worthy of an article. It's also, you know, it's nonfiction and it's very detailed. And I just didn't, you know, I didn't know when I was younger that you could do nonfiction like that, that it could be more than just like the facts and stuff. So it's a New Yorker article by Catherine Boo and it's called The Marriage Cure. One July morning last year in Oklahoma City in a public housing project named Sooner Haven, 22-year-old Kim Henderson pulled a pair of lowrider jeans over a high-rising gold lame thong and declared herself ready for church. Her best friend in the project, Korean Brothers, was already in the parking lot, fanning away her hot flashes behind the wheel of a smoke-belching Dodge Shadow. Cars raggedy, but it'll get us from pillar to post, Korean said when Kim climbed in. At Holy Temple Baptist Church, two miles down the road, the state of Oklahoma was offering the residents of Sooner Haven three days of instruction on how to get and stay married. Kim marveled that Korean, who was 49, 
seemed to know what to wear on such occasions. The older woman's lacquered fingernails were the same shade as her lipstick, pantsuit, nylons, and pumps, which also happened to be the color of the red clay dust that settled on Sooner Haven every summer. The dust stained the sidewalks and gathered in the interstices of a high iron security perimeter that enclosed the project's 150 modest homes. This forbidding fence, and the fact that most of the adults inside it were female, sometimes prompted unkind comparisons with the old maximum security women's prison five minutes up the road. But Kim and Korean believed that they could escape Sooner Haven, and so were only mildly irked by what one of their neighbors called our cage. Besides, other low-income besides, other low-income areas had fierce borderlines too. The distance between Sooner Haven and Holy Temple Baptist Church edged the territories of the street gangs Hoover Crip, Grape Street Crip, and Rolling Twenties. Kim's brother had been murdered by a gang, but she couldn't keep track of their ever-mutating names, boundaries, and affiliations. And Korean had refused to learn, even when Hoover Crip members started shooting at one of her five children. It was Korean's contention that you could be in the ghetto and not of it. Ignoring the stunts of heavily armed neighbors kept your mind free from more enriching pursuits, such as the marriage class for which Korean had roused her young friend from bed this morning. So this is a whole article about the idea that, like, if you get women to get married, they will not be poor anymore. And it was like a, um, a policy that Oklahoma was trying to come out with as like a, a public policy. And it's very, it's a very smart article about public policy, and there's lots of facts and research in it, but it's just so detailed, and the characters are just exactly like people that I grew up with. And I remember I, I found this copy of The New Yorker in a bathroom at a party when I was in college. It was right next to an Elvis conspiracy book, and I just started reading it, and I couldn't stop. And it, it for me, felt like the moment when my life changed, when I knew, like, I want to be a journalist and I want to write about my people. And I had no idea, still have no idea how Kate Boo does Kate Boo. But um, every year I, re I reread all of her magazine articles and I try to learn. And every year I feel like I learned how she did one more sentence. But it's kind of, you know, like the infinity that you can never reach it. But it really inspires me to to see that my people could be worth that level of detail and time and consideration. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I think I'll read the, just the, the first page, if that's okay, because the prologue is, is the story of a couple months after I came out of the closet. And it's, I won't, you know, read the whole thing now, but for many years I told this story as if it were funny. And there's funny parts of it. Like as a, my grandma said, you know, some she told my mom, my mom was really upset about me being gay. My grandma like stormed into the bathroom and said, some people eat hot dogs and some people eat fish. And I would tell that story is really funny for a long time. And then when I started writing the book, I watched this Netflix special, this comedy special, Nanette. And she was, it's Hannah Gatsby. And she was talking about how she had used humor to to protect herself in some ways and not feel things. And I realized in that moment, like, oh, I'm doing that with my story, my story. And so I kind of just like went off by myself and tried to, to think, how did you really feel when you were 18? You've turned this into this funny thing, but like, how, 
how did it really feel? And I realized that after I came out, I didn't tell my mom about this first kiss with a girl. And I, and by the time I realized this, my mom was dead. And I realized that was like the first brick I put in building this wall between myself and the world. And I never told my mom anything ever again. And I never, and I can't now. And so I think, um, getting to the place to write this prologue took a whole reorientation of my understanding of myself and this story and my relationship to my mom. So it was very emotionally hard, but, and I, I think I went through like 35 drafts as well. So <laughs> it was also craft, craft wise hard. This is the prologue and it takes place in 2002. A few months after my pastor asked God to kill me, my mom ran to the bathroom and I ran after her. She shut the door before I reached it. I knocked, but she didn't answer. The rest of our family was in the dining room, eating spare ribs at my grandma's good table. Or maybe by then, they were listening to hear what I'd say to my mother. I pushed the bathroom door open. My mom was sitting on the toilet, bent over, crying into her hands. It was a small bathroom, only as wide as my wingspan. My mom was heavy enough that she often told people with some mix of pride and horror that doctors considered her morbidly obese. I stepped around her, squeezed myself into a space between the toilet and the tub, and I touched her back. She spoke without looking at me. I could lose my job, she said, half whispering, half crying. My mom answered phones at a church for $9 an hour, and my dad sprayed bugs for less than that. They had no savings account, no reserve to cover whatever my love life cost them. I knew my mom was right. One disapproving creature could bankrupt our family. Mom, I said, I'm not going to be gay anymore. I think like when I would tell that story when I was younger, I would tell it as a joke of like, ah, can you believe this? I tell my parents I won't be gay anymore. Like, that's hilarious. And when I sat down to rewrite it, to write it, and like really put myself back at the place. I just felt like so sad for my 18 year old self that I wanted my parents to love me so badly that I was willing to give up this thing that I knew was very true about myself. And like at that point, I had just kissed a girl for the first time. And like before that, like when I would kiss a, a boy, my mom and I would make this huge deal about it. We would go out for ice cream or we'd go to Waffle House and we'd go over every single detail. And like those kisses, you know, they were fine. But then when I kissed a girl, it just like blew my mind. And I was like, okay, this is what kissing is. Like, I see why people are into it now. And I just knew like, I can't tell my mom any of the details about this. I can't tell her how happy I am. And I felt like this, this had really transformed me. And, and yet I was willing turn my back on that feeling and just go back to like bad sloppy boy kisses because I didn't want to lose my mom and yeah I guess just writing it I, I realized for the first time like how sad it was and like how how much I had tried for my family to be someone other than who I was where do you write well I am a very um routine type person and I just right in my little, I have a little two bedroom apartment and one room is an office 
and I just always sit here. I only use desktop computers. I hate laptops. I can't go somewhere else. I have to write at the exact same place and I have to have the desk all clean. And um, I, I do write a lot on paper and then transfer it. Like if I can't think, I'll, I'll take a walk and like sometimes I'll like voice record myself if I'm like working out a sentence and I'll come back. But but mostly I, I write just here at my little desktop computer. And, and it's nice for something like this where it's a really personal book because then I can shut the door and I'm not, I can't revisit it at night. Like I think people who have laptops, like you're just taking that thing around with you around the house, you know, and it's still existing with you, but I need like an actual door I can shut and be like, you're in that room. And then when I'm in that room, I'm sad and, or focused or whatever, you know, when I'm not, then I don't have to be. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I am a really huge basketball fan of the NBA and it's the only thing that I, that makes me not think about writing. Like, cause I take a lot of walks, but when I'm walking, I'm thinking about writing or, you know, sometimes if I'm listening to podcasts or anything, I start to get a little bit jealous and want to make something, but like, I have no athletic ability whatsoever. So I'm, there's nothing about the NBA that it makes me feel like, Oh, I should be working. Or, um, I have a really good friend, Ben in Philadelphia and we we'll just like text through the entire NBA season, which thank God lasts almost the whole year long. And we text about trade rumors. We text, he's a straight man and I'm a gay woman, but we text about which players we think are the hottest and who has the best smile. We text about the uniforms. We text about which announcers we like or don't like. And we'll just text through the whole games of like, oh, did you see that? And you know, it's kind of like soap operas for dudes because there is a lot of drama of like, who's going to go to this team and is he going to get traded? And we know way too much about salary cap and like who got paid what, how, who made how many points. And, um, but it's just a great distraction for me. And I also, my other big distraction is The Bachelorette or The Bachelor. And my I started watching them because my mom really loved them. It's just so stupid. And I I just love it. And like, I don't like, smart tv at all <laughs> and I, I just like to watch dumb tv and just like zone out and you know like my mom was a big romantic and I, I guess I'm a pretty big romantic as well I know that people don't stay together from those shows but yeah it just kind of like turns my brain off I think if I watch anything too smart I get jealous and want to make something myself so it makes me start thinking about writing who do you show your work to first to get feedback my best friend is also a journalist. She runs the NPR affiliate in Portland and she's in audio now, but she used to work at the Oregonian with me. And I have shown her the first draft of everything I've written since I was 22, even just like dumb daily stories that I should not be wasting her time with. It might be a crutch in some ways because I, you know, I've tried as I've gotten older to not show her every single thing I write, but she's just so smart. And like, I've never had I don't know. She just, she, she knows me so well that she can call me on things and she'll be like, yeah, you're a good writer, but you're, you've left out this key reporting thing. And, or like you're over attached to that word. I mean, she knows my work better than anyone. So she'll know like what word I've used way too many times. And she's also just great at asking questions. And I think she's become a better editor over time as well, not just for me, but for her staff that she actually runs. And she's just really good at asking the question that reveals the reporting hole rather than being like, uh, hey, stupid, you didn't do this reporting thing. Like she'll just 
ask a question and then I'll always like start trying to explain it to her. And then her answer is usually like, yeah, but you didn't put that in the writing. So you need to do that. Um, her name's Anna Griffin and she's crazy smart. And in addition to being crazy smart, she's crazy fast. So I'm super spoiled on that because the real world of editing is not like that. But if I'm like, hey, do you have time to read this extremely sad chapter about my family? She's like, can you give me 15 minutes? <laughs> like, and she'll read it that day, which never happens with anybody else in this world. So um, I'm very spoiled. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, gosh. Well, I've been rejected a lot of times for this particular story. I'm an extremely stubborn person, and usually that makes most people in my life very frustrated because it's not a good human quality to have, but for work, it's very great because I just don't give up on things, and, you know, the whole time I was doing this, like I said, I got rejected for probably like 10 grants, but I just knew that I thought it was interesting, and so other people had to think it was interesting. Like, I just trust my own taste. And I knew that somehow it, it would happen eventually. You know, like the last big rejection I got for this is when I applied to get into the book writing class at Columbia, the professor initially wrote back, why would anyone read 60,000 words about Roy's life? And initially I was like, he's right. I've gotten rejected 10 other times. Like, when am I going to get it through my thick skull that nobody wants to read this or watch this? And I... I had like a little sofa bed at the time and I crawled over to my sofa bed and I just cried for hours. And I texted my friend who reads all my stuff first. My life is over. I can't believe I just wasted 12 years on this story. And then like after I was like dehydrated from crying, something in me just like roused up and it was like, um, excuse you, like you are a good journalist. You have good taste. You are a snob you know what is good and you have worked on this for 12 years like if it was bad you wouldn't be interested in it for 12 years so just get up and explain to him why you've done this for 12 years and so I just you know like wiped my little eyes and drank some water and wrote back to him just for my heart of like why I've done this for 12 years and then he just wrote back all right see you Monday you're in the class <laughs> and I'm stubborn and I trust myself I think to be a writer, you just have to believe in your own self. You have to be willing to grow and take feedback. I, I truly believe editors are there to make things better. And I don't believe in fighting with editors a lot. I think you can only fight a couple of things when you get edits. Otherwise, you just seem like a prima donna. But I do really believe in believing in yourself and standing up for it. It's just an invitation to go back and edit yourself and, and keep working and like try again. Because it doesn't mean that the root idea is bad it means that you haven't succeeded in conveying what you were trying to convey and sometimes it's just a disconnect from your heart to your brain to your fingers to the computer and you just have to like take a step back and be like why didn't this come out like I wanted it to come out and can I try again what is your favorite word so I have it's really hard to pick one word and I'm surprised that people do for this podcast but I have like a little i phone notes that I keep of different words and phrases I like and the the document is called trundle as a verb so it, like the first word that comes to my mind is trundle just because I see it a lot but I think actually um probably in real life it's not pretty but I think my favorite word is ain't 
and because I think when I was a kid, I, I would get scolded a lot for using the word ain't, and like I associated it with like low class. My mom would say, "You're only white trash." People would say ain't, and I think I spent a lot of my younger years berating myself for being southern. And thinking like, I have to be less Southern if I'm going to succeed in this world. And I have to be less Southern if I'm going to be smart. And the older I get, the more I really do not care. Like, I don't care about grammar. I think grammar rules are pretty stupid. Like, as long as you're conveying things and communicating, like, who cares? It's classist. It's elitist. And ain't is an extremely good word. It it conveys emotion. It People know what you mean when you say it. And I don't know. I just like... Re, I, I like reclaiming it and feeling like I can talk how I grew up talking and it doesn't mean I'm stupid and you have to deal with it. You know, I have a fancy job. I have a fancy degree. I can say ain't if I want to. And I'm secure in that. I think it's colorful and I'm grateful to the people who came up with it and passed it down to the generations of Southerners. Thank you so much <laughs> for your time. I'm so appreciative. Thank you. Thank you. If you like today's show with Casey Parks, author of the memoir, Diary of a Misfit, check out my interview with Alexandria Marzano-Lesnovich on her nonfiction book, The Fact of the Body. We talked about writing a mixed genre novel, part memoir and part true crime, transitioning from attorney to writer, and writing beginnings and the consequences of how we craft the opening of stories. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 360 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Carlos Allende, Stacey Durasmo, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey, I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.